All right, good morning. I hope you all are having a great day today. Uh, we are all grateful to be able to have a beautiful day, beautiful sunshine, beautiful blue sky, to be gathered together today, to be able to lift our voices in song, to be encouraged by God's Word. And I pray that we all will be encouraged by God's Word today. I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 in our time together today. And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage together this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Father, we thank you that all of us are here today, that all of us are gathered here today, and and we all have all of our things that we are struggling with. Some of us struggling with great things. Some of us struggling with small things. Some of us very near to you, feeling your presence and your comfort as we struggle. Some far away, and some may not even knowing you. Father, I pray that your word today will come alive to all of us here, regardless of how we find ourselves here this morning. Father, that these would be words of life and encouragement, that the same hope that was given to the man in this text would be the same hope that would either awaken our hearts or revive our hearts again. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I, am, I am very grateful to have grown up around God's Word from a very young age. Uh, I'm thankful for my mom on this Mother's Day, who uh, I have not seen uh, because she has been with the Lord for about 17 years now, who at a season in her life when experiencing great deliverance from things that would trouble her until the day of her death, having a strong desire to see that my brother and my sister and myself would, would be in church. And not just that we would be in church, but we would be in a church that was strong and faithful to the teaching of God's Word. I, I'm thankful for the gospel gripping the heart of my dad. And that there was just a short season where it was my mom and my brother and sister and I going to church and that my dad would join us shortly thereafter. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my mom and dad together making a decision that my brother and my sister and I would grow up in Christian schooling. And I'm thankful for Mrs. Scott, my third grade teacher at Grace Christian School in Birmingham, Alabama, being faithful to share the gospel on a flannel graph with different colored hearts. I'm thankful for the gospel that day, the clear message from that sweet lady opening my eyes to my sin and my need for a savior that was not named Blake. I'm grateful to God for saving me by his mercy and by his grace that September day. And I am grateful for Bible verses memorized and for stories that I could recount by heart, not told in an unfaithful way, I might add, but but one downside to all of that, and, and I tell this to my boys now who have grown up with uh, most of their life a pastor as a father in and around church and also at Christian schools, that the more, sometimes the more that you are around something and the more you hear about something, the more you can take it for granted. And the more that we as individuals can let stories that should punch us with grace, lose the effectiveness of that punch. I, I say this 
not exaggerating it at all, but these 20 familiar verses have absolutely wrecked me over these last couple of weeks. This is a story that I have been very familiar with. My very first Bible uh, that my parents bought for me when I was 10 years old on my 10th birthday. This was one of the stories that there were pictures of in it. Jesus casting out the demons of this man. But there is so much here that is going on. Tons here that is going on. And it should grip every one of our hearts. And it should break every one of our hearts. But it should also cause our hearts to overflow with unending praise to our good and gracious God. And, and that is my prayer for all of us today as we look together in this text. And so I'm going to read these verses for us again, and, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me there in your Bible as I read them aloud. This is God's Word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with the stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, don't torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, and he was sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. Today's outline is very simple. 
We're going to look at the principal parties in this story today. We're going to look at the man. We're going to look at the legion. We're going to look at the townspeople. And finally, we're going to look at Jesus. And my prayer is that we will be able to marvel at God's mercy today. Just as this man did and just as this man led many to back then. And as we jump in, a little background info is needed here because there is a little controversy about this text. In chapters 3 and 4, we see Jesus' teaching ministry ramping up. And in doing so, crowds are coming to hear him and not all with good intentions. We've gone over this over these last many weeks. But we've just seen in chapter 4 that Jesus has been spending time with his closest followers, helping them understand his purpose and his teaching more clearly. And then last week, we saw Jesus' power over creation, his power over nature with the wind and the waves and calming the storm and the seas. And I'm not going to recap that. Matthew did a phenomenal job with that. And if you weren't here last week, please go online and listen to that. But I do want us to look again at what seems like an insignificant verse that is going to help us greatly today. Mark 4.35, if you're there in your Bible, look back over at that. And this is what Mark says. He says, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let's cross to the other side. Well, what was waiting on the other side? Before we get into that at the ground level, let's talk about it at the geographical level. Where they were was Galilee, Jewish country, land familiar to them. On the other side was Gadara and Gerasa, Gentile country, land not familiar to them. This was land that was different culture and different customs, different rules and different regulations. All that they knew and that was familiar to them was now going to be unfamiliar. We'll get into the importance of all of that in a moment. But here right now, we see this by way of background to help us know what this crew is in for on their journey to the other side. And we saw last week what happened. (laughs) They're journeying and they're hit with a storm. It scares the life out of all of them, but Jesus is peacefully sleeping. (laughs) And immediately they get to the other side and when they land on the shore, things get interesting. Look there at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. No chance to land and set up camp or to have a moment to survey the surroundings there. No, they land and it's go time. Yet what they find is not spiritual combat like what we might imagine. Yes, it it is absolutely a spiritual battle. But it's not like what we might think that it is. No, what they find is pitiful. Absolutely pitiful. And not just pitiful, but heartbreaking. And this is part of what has wrecked me in these verses the last couple of weeks. And this is the first thing that we need to see today. We need to look at the man. And, and I say this because the man, because we never learn his name. We learn the name of the demons, but we don't learn the name of the man. And that is part of what is heartbreaking. We don't know anything about this man prior to this encounter with Christ. We don't know how he came to be demon-possessed. 
We don't know how long he had been demon-possessed. We don't know if he had a family. We don't know if he had loved ones that were worried about him and wondering what had happened to him. We, we don't know anything about that. But what we do know is that this man was in bad shape. He was in bad shape. Let's look at the text again there to see what it says. In verse 3, it says, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I want to pause there for a minute. And I want you to picture that man in your mind. And I want you to see him there. And I want you to see how wrecked and ravaged and ransacked this man's life was. I, I, I want you to feel that for a moment. This picture is devastating. This poor man. He lived among the dead. Among the dead. The stench of death always surrounding him. He at times has been bound and chained. His feet and his ankles fettered. Day and night he cries in anguish and misery. And he's cut up all over his body. And there's a little bit of debate about whether he was doing the cutting himself or whether his madness was causing him to throw himself constantly on the rocky shore there. But either way, he's beyond recognition. This man is in horrible shape. And yes, this was a man to be feared. I mean, I think we all would be intimidated and shocked and scared by this image. And the language of the text here is not the language of a man, but it's the language of a wild beast. Something we might expect to find in a zoo. But more than a man to be feared, this was a man to be pitied. A more pitiful creature you would never find. And you may say, but Blake, this man is demon-possessed. Like he's, he's filled with demons. You may say, this is, this is a rare example. And I would say in return, friend, this is anyone, man, woman, or child, that is or has been caught deep in the throes of sin and bondage. Now, I want to be careful here, and I don't want to put into the text what isn't said in the text. But Satan and his demons can bind and chain in many ways other than outright possession. Have you ever been with someone or around someone that is deep in the throes of drug addiction? Have you ever been with someone 
who the weariness of this life is more than they can bear at any given moment. Have you ever been with someone who you just can't understand how they seem to consistently make a mess of all that comes into their life? This situation is rare, yes. But this man is not a rare case. Yes, this is an extreme case that we might not readily see. But this man's condition is all around us if we would have eyes to see it. We are surrounded all around by suffering sinners. What is our posture when we encounter them? This man runs to Jesus and he falls on his face in his presence. He is in desperate need of help. This man was in desperate need. And as we will see in a moment, what this man received was more than he ever could have hoped. But it's not just the man here in the story. There's also the legion. And next in the story, we see the source of the man's misery. This man is being tormented by thousands of demons. And what we see here is the ultimate aim of Satan and his armies. To mar and to maim the image of God. To destroy and make miserable those created in God's image. There is pure jealousy and unbridled hate for those created to bear the image of God. But the good news is that these demons do not have ultimate power or dominion or authority. And we see that from the first encounter here. This man is buried deep in the tombs. Now, you may be wondering, how did this man get there so quickly? Well, these tombs were only a little ways inland from the shore. But this is amazing and should cause us to perk up. The very presence of Jesus draws them out to him. The text there, notice, says when he saw Jesus from afar, this man inland sees Jesus on the water and he makes his way there so that immediately when Jesus gets out of the boat, he is there. The very presence of Jesus draws them out. His presence alone brings what is mired in death and hiding It brings it into the light and toward life. And this encounter here is quick and it is not good for the demons. And there is a little bit of differing opinion on who is speaking when in this text. And for us, we're going to follow the pronouns. First, the man speaks. It appears from most commentators that the man is speaking for himself when he comes to Jesus. We don't know for sure if there was a moment of clear thinking or reason in him, but there might have been. And he speaks and he asks Jesus not to torment him. The hold that these demons had on this man was such that them leaving him felt like torment. This is the hold that they had on him. 
Then Jesus asks their name. They say legion, for we are many. Now, a couple of things here. One, yes, this is a military term, and one that would have been said to show power. But these demons know they are powerless in the presence of God. They're not trying to intimidate Jesus at all. They know they can't. A legion on that day would have been up to 6,000 or so Roman soldiers. Now, we don't know if there were 6,000 demons in the man, but there were 2,000 pigs that were slaughtered, as we'll see in a minute. So we can reasonably think that there were at least 2,000 demons tormenting this man. Either way, there are many upon many and multitude upon multitude of demons possessing this man. And the demons do not want to be sent away. They want to continue tormenting people in this area. If they can't torment this man, they want to torment other people in the area. They know their time with this man is done, but they don't want their work to be done. If there are more image bearers, there are more images to maim. So they ask to be sent to the pigs. And Jesus grants their request. They are sent to the pigs, and the pigs, driven mad by the demons, run into the sea and perish along with the demons. And that leads us to the next people in our story, and this is the townspeople. These pigs had owners. They weren't feral pigs wandering the hillside, like the ones you see on the pictures of like the 500-pound pig that would eat your face off. That's not these pigs, okay? No, these pigs were being raised for profit. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. Imagine those poor pig herders. They're there and they're watching their pigs eating and all of a sudden the pigs go stark raving mad and run off a cliff into the ocean to their death. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty freaked out by that. And they are alarmed, yes, but they're also mad. And I'm not talking like crazy mad. I'm talking like anger mad. And they go into town and they get back up and they are coming with bad intentions This is their way of life that has just been harmed. I mean, just think about it for a moment. And when they return, they are even more afraid than they were because of what they find. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, I find this striking Before, when the man is demon-possessed and he's cut up and naked, they would approach the man to bind and chain him, apparently without fear. But now the man has clothes on and is completely sane and they're petrified. And this is also heartbreaking. These people are truly face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus. And instead of glorifying him and praising him for what he has done for this man, they are seized with great fear. Why? Because they see clearly what following Jesus means. And it is terrifying to them. And let's be honest. This is no different in our day to day. People still do not want to be changed by the grace and mercy of God. 
people whose hearts are cold, hard to the gospel, because they will demand that everything about their lives be changed. Hearts that can see and hear of the life-changing power of the gospel, but instead of being moved by fear through love and awe, they in turn fear what they may have to give up. And what they do in response is so sad. They don't take Jesus by force and throw him into the boat and demand that he leave. No, they beg. They beg. They beg and they plead for him to depart and not return. They know his power. They know his grace. And they don't want any of it. And Jesus honors their request. But not before one last encounter with the man. And it is in this encounter that we are going to connect all the dots here. Because we've talked about the man and we've talked about the demons and we've talked about the townspeople. But we haven't talked about the one who this entire passage and all of life is truly about. And that's Jesus. Look at verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons that man begged Jesus that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Verse 19 tells the tale. Let's go back to verse 35 of chapter 4. Let's cross to the other side. Why would Jesus do this? We haven't talked about this yet, but it was absolutely not kosher what Jesus was doing by suggesting this. All that takes place in this story runs against Jewish custom and tradition. Gentile country, check. Man with unclean spirit, check, check. Man living among dead bodies. Check, check, check. Pigs. Quadruple check. Why would Jesus do this? There was a man who needed saving who would in turn be his witness to the entire region of the marvelous mercy of God. And this is the true heart of our Savior. When he sees what in our eyes is the worst, his heart of compassion is moved. Not moved away. Moved towards. My favorite Puritan, Richard Sibbs, said, we have this for a foundation of truth. That there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is no end to his mercy, friends. But praise God, if we find life in him, there is an end to our sin. Another hero of mine, John Newton, said late in life, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Remember, Jesus is helping us to see that his kingdom has come. And it's an upside down kingdom. We've talked about this before. Helping us to have eyes that are changed, that 
we're able to pity what the world prizes and we prize what the world pities, that we suspect everything that the world holds dear and that we don't run away from all that the world hates. And in doing so, that means defying what is proper to seek and save the lost. It means revealing how mercy and grace work, not law-keeping. Dane Ortland, in his marvelous book, Gentle and Lowly, helps us to see this by talking about how Christ moves towards sinners and in doing so, helping us understand how Christ encounters the unclean. The Old Testament Jews operated under a sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more. One particularly striking part of this system is that when an unclean person comes in contact with a clean person, that clean person then becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness is contagious. Consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he's the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and heart. The simplicity, the innocence, and the loveliness. Yet what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? And I would add the demoniac. He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart. The longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We all can testify to the humanness of touch. A warm hug does something warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. And that is the other part that has wrecked me these last two weeks. Christ is so above, so above how we think things work that he can welcome all that are ruined and instead of it ruining him, it sets right all that has been ruined. And what blows my mind is not that he would do that for the demoniac, but that he did it for me. As Jesus leaves the region, the man begs to go with Jesus, and Jesus' response is not, sure, come with me. No, it is stay and tell your story. But it's not tell of my power over demons. No, it's tell of God's mercy to you. And that leads to our application today. What do we do with this text today, each one of us? We do one thing and one thing only. We marvel at the mercy of God. Look at what a faithful, obedient man this man became. Look at verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is a question I've been asking myself the last couple of weeks. How regularly do I marvel at the mercy of God? Marveling at all his death accomplished in saving me. The words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 echo here. And you 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were if we are in Christ. No different than the man that Jesus met on the shore. Without God and without hope in this world, as Paul would say in verse 12. And then the words, precious heart reviving words. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. And how does God move towards us in rich mercy? He sees our sin. And instead of leaving us in it as we deserve to be left, He comes and He takes our sin on Himself. Do not miss the imagery here. The man that is brought out from death, Jesus would die for that man. This man being brought out of the tombs. Jesus would be placed in the tomb. And then Jesus himself would rise out of the tomb to give life to us all. He would die a criminal's death so that criminals like me and like you could go free. And not just that he would die, but that he would rise from the dead. And don't miss this. This is what struck these demons with fear. Conquering sin, death, and the grave. In Matthew and Luke, this story is also told. And in those stories, these demons begged Jesus not just to not be sent out of the country, but not to be sent into the abyss. And they referenced their time. And they're trying to remind Jesus that their time hadn't come to be thrown away forever. And Jesus lets them know, oh, I know that. Because my time hasn't come yet either, but it's about to. And when it does, victory for all that are in me. And this is the hope of the gospel. Continuing on. God being rich in mercy, the mercy that took on death for me, the mercy that took on sin and shame for me, the mercy that took on rejection for me. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ does for us what we could and would never do, and He does this to make us His. More from my dear friend Richard Sibbs. He says, Christ suffered in his own person whatever he calls us to suffer, that he might the better learn to relieve and pity us in our sufferings. In his desertion in the garden and upon the cross, he was content to lack that unspeakable comfort in the presence of his Father 
both to, bear, both to bear the wrath of the Lord for a time for us, and likewise to know the better how to comfort us in our greatest extremities. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. Whatever is to be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. And so we marvel at the mercy of God. But why? Why do we marvel at the mercy of God? Well, we also see that here in verse 20. We marvel at the mercy of God so we can help others marvel at the mercy of God. We cannot keep this to ourselves. If we have received such great mercy, how could we not brag about the one who showed it to us? So the end is this. Friend, do not stop marveling at the mercy of God. This is everyone here. Everyone. If you have received God's mercy, marvel. If you are apart from God's mercy, marvel. And if that is you and you'd like to learn more, please come find someone today. We would love to tell you more about the one who saved us. Nothing would delight us more. As I've said before, I love the Chronicles of Narnia and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm getting deep in the weeds, but it's my favorite one. There's a character there who's also one of my favorite characters, Eustace Scrub. Yes, it's a funny name. Laugh. Ha ha. It's funny. And he's radically changed and transformed in this series. And later in the series, he's talking to Edmund, who we know from the first series, was radically changed and transformed in this series. And they're kind of comparing notes on how they have been saved by Aslan, the Christ figure. He says, well, this is Eustace. Well, don't tell me about it then, said Eustace, but do tell me who Aslan is. Do you know him? Edmund says, well, he knows me. He's the great lion the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. Friends, what we have in Jesus is so much more than a fictional lion. And if he has saved you, marvel at it and help others marvel at it as well. Let's marvel at the one who saved us so we can help others marvel as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this text. We thank you for all that we see here. We thank you for your marvelous mercy. We thank you that you reach to those that we think are unreachable. And Father, we should never doubt that you can do that because you reached us as well. May we be moved to, to sing loudly about your mercy today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.